Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell. Alongside me this week is my regular co-host, Michael Cox, plus one more. Because last week, as many of you will know, we waved goodbye to Tom Warville, who has left the pod and the Athletic to join RB Leipzig. It's pretty sad for us and I know for many of you listeners as well, but also pretty damn cool for Tom, to be honest. And I say that through gritted teeth. Uh, On last week's episode, he told us all about his new job uh, and he left us with some thoughts on data in football journalism. So what's next for us? Well, specifically on this podcast feed in November, Michael and I are going on something of a European tour, which definitely sounds like the podcast equivalent of a midlife crisis that you would have after someone very close to your heart leaves you. (laughs) Uh, But it's also something that we have genuinely been planning for a while. We are a few months into the season now and it's high time that we check in with some of the major European leagues not named the Premier League, specifically Serie A, La Liga and the Bundesliga. So that's the plan over the next few weeks. We're starting uh, with Italy, with Serie A, uh, and we're fortunate to have James Horncastle with us. We're going to take a look at early season storylines and focus on uh, half a dozen or so teams that James and Michael find particularly interesting. James, thank you very much for joining us once more on this podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be back. Uh, Shame that Tom has gone. Uh, Hopefully he can revive the fortunes of the flagging RB empire. Uh, we'll have to see, but uh, no, always good to be able to talk about City Hour with you guys. Well, he was really blocking the pathway of a, of a lot of um, previously valued podcast <laughs> contributors. Uh, James, I was thinking earlier, you probably, outside of Tom and Michael and myself, have been on this podcast more than most. Of course, previously we were called the Zonal Marking Podcast, and um, before Tom was even an apple in the athletics eye, uh, you know, we spoke to you about all sorts of uh, great Italian football-related topics, uh, and I would just point any new listeners of the pod to our now two-year back catalogue, you know, Horncastle-specific episodes, AC Milan under Zaccheroni. Uh, We did a a great episode on the modern Italian central midfielder. Many of the guys we touched on ended up with European Championship winners' medals round their necks over the summer. And also, of course, Jose Mourinho's treble with Inter Milan in uh, 2009-2010. He's back in Serie A, James. Mourinho now with AS Roma. How is he getting on? Well, it's been up and down. I started really well. Um, seven wins in all competitions. I think the surprising thing has been Roma as an attacking force um, because they've been exciting to watch um, at times. You know, they are number one in City for XG, number one in City for shots. But it's been what they do without the ball that has been uh, kind of what's cost them. Um, even though Mourinho thinks it's refereeing decisions. And there have <laughs> been some egregious ones that have gone against Roma. But um, I think I wrote a piece on The Athletic 
a couple of weeks about ago about how many clubs are just exasperated by the standard of refereeing in Serie A. 60% more penalties uh, than the Premier League uh, in the last two and a bit seasons. So it's not just Roma. Um, but yeah, they, they're as open a Mourinho side as I have ever seen. That makes for some exciting games. Um, but you know they've lost 3-2 to Lazio. And they've lost 3-2 to Verona. They lost 3-2 to Venezia. Uh, and of course, they lost 6-1 to Bodo Glimt, who almost uh, beat them again uh, in the reverse fixture. So you've got this kind of, uh, I don't want to say yin and yang, but um, uh, it's been a real kind of roller coaster ride, which, we're, which has, since the last international break, has gone speeding downhill. I wonder if he might try and shut it all down post-international break. Do you think there's a chance that he could literally flip the team on its head and go, let's sort this out defensively at the risk of losing all our exciting attacking play? Is there a chance that the next third of the season could be Roma playing out a load of low margin, nil-nils, one-nils either way, do you think? Or is it is the squad just not set up for that? I think it's a good squad. A squad has been attacked by Mourinho. Um, particularly after the the Bodo Glimt uh, debacle, one of the most humiliating and historic defeats, not only in Roma's history, but also his own career. Um, Look, they don't have a midfield player who can screen the defence, destroy and disrupt, even though Brian Cristante is is perfectly able at that um, for them. Um, In terms of balancing the team... uh, I look at I look at it and I just think Roma have got so many good attacking players. Um, Tammy Abraham, for example, most expensive signing of the summer in City A, started really well. He has been unlucky in that I think in all competitions he's maybe hit the woodwork six or seven times. He's hit it four times in City A, and he's underperformed his, his xG. So I mean, he's someone who's been getting in good positions, um, but just hasn't been able to find the back of the net. Often it's been the post of the crossbar. So, you know, I think overall we'd be expecting to see Tammy score more goals. I think their sporting director has been saying, look, other strikers have recently come into the league. They found it a little bit hard to get to grips within their first year. Most famously, Dzeko at Roma, his first year. I mean, they were calling him Edin Dzeko, Dzeko meaning blind in Italian because he missed so many chances. Uh, But then he would go on and win. Uh, the golden boot and become one of the best Roma strikers in history. Certainly, I think the, the best since they had Gabriel Battistuta talking pure strikers, because obviously Totti played that false nine role so well. And yeah, they've they've got midfield players all over the place. Jordan Veritu, who's very good, got into double figures last year. I mentioned Cristante, who I think coming on in the European Championship final against England helped them check um, Declan Rice before Rice was 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 taken off. Um, Mkhitaryan last year. I mean, it was a it was a comeback year for him. Um, Twenty six goal involvements in all competitions. I think he's a really intelligent player. Obviously, has his own past with Mourinho, going back to Manchester United. But I don't think that's really affected them personally on the pitch. Uh, however, it just hasn't been happening for him. They've got Spinazzola to come back. Remember, Spinazzola was one of the revelations of the European Championships. He's been out with that Achilles tear. He suffered against Belgium. Um, Zaniolo uh, has still yet to score in Serie A. So there's more to come 
from this great attack. Um, but I, I just I, I would expect Mourinho to achieve more balance in the team through coaching instead of through the transfer window, which is what he seems to be waiting for at the moment. Well, and next up for them post international break, they have a Serie A fixture against Genoa or. Andriy Shevchenko's Genoa, as they are now to be called, uh, him having been appointed in the last few weeks. Uh, something you spoke about on this week's Totally Football Show Europod uh, really well. So we'll leave that there for, for listeners of that podcast. Uh, and we would recommend that you go and listen to James and Julien um, and Alvaro and, and Rafa as well. Talk all things uh, European football with James Richardson uh, on that podcast. Uh, James, before we get stuck into individual teams and teams that are interesting us for tactical reasons or, or personnel reasons, whatever it might be. Just run us through the, the state of play at the top of Serie A uh, as we speak, heading into this third international break. Last season, Inter Milan won the title, breaking Juventus's nine-year title run. Uh, but so far, they're, they're seven points off two early season pace setters. Yeah, and, and pace setter is the, the operative phrase, I suppose, because uh, Milan and Napoli have only dropped two points uh, since the start of the season. Um, for Milan, for example, it's their best start since the, the 50s when Bella Gutman uh, was in charge. Bella Gutman, who famously cursed Benfica, who have <laughs> not won a Champions League slash European Cup since. Uh, Napoli have kind of matched the pace set by the best Maurizio Sarri. Uh, Napoli uh, under Luciano Spalletti um, and I, I think that's made some of the other teams look worse than they actually are the ones that are uh, following them um, because for example for example Inter aren't too far off what they were doing last year at least in terms of in terms of points um, they're playing the same system under Simone Inzaghi but uh, slightly more fluid uh, playing higher up the pitch more possession. Um, and then Atalanta, for example, I think one of the narratives around, you know, the fairy tale story of Italian football over the last five years has been, is it over? Um, yeah, they've lost Papu. Does Ilicic fancy it anymore? And yeah, after 12 games, this is their best start to the season. So in, in, again, in some respects, uh, Milan and Napoli are kind of um, warping perspectives on, on others and, and maybe you could say I'm sure that the Mourinho hardliners would be saying that's that's true of some of the the reception of, of Roma so far it does set very high standards for for other teams and other managers to follow uh, Michael in terms of Napoli they've got Luciano Spalletti in charge this season as James has alluded to it could barely have started any better for Spalletti uh, what can you tell me about the way that his Napoli side plays I've just enjoyed watching him first and foremost whenever I've seen him play. They've got the most uh, most possession in the league in Serie A by quite a long way. I think that the thing that is true of both Napoli and, and Milan is they're both real teams in the true sense of the word. I don't think they're really based around, you know, a couple of individuals who have, you know, dominated the goal scoring, as is the case for I would say some of the lesser teams. But they seem very cohesive, very well organized. Napoli's defensive record in particular is excellent, only four goals conceded. Um, in the 12 games so far um, and it feels to me like that's what Serie A is about at the moment I think as James wrote in a couple of articles over the summer there were quite a few high profile departures Ronaldo and Lukaku and Hakimi and Donnarumma 
if you're looking for the real top players in Europe, I don't think you'll find many of them in Syria at the moment. But I think Napoli and Milan, the way they've started, um, I suppose Inter a bit of an exception because Inter were exceptional last year as well. But maybe these could be two of the best teams we've seen in Syria in the last last few years because they're you know both still unbeaten after 12 games nothing to choose between them um well goal difference to choose between them um but they've both been really impressive so far james reputationally for spalletti this must have been an incredible few months because he's someone who is a very well known within italian football and you'd think at his stage or the stage of his career you wouldn't learn too much new about him often characters personalities managerial records and skills are almost set in stone uh, by this point but of course his last job with Inter uh, he left in 2019 Antonio Conte took charge and turned them into what they became title winners last season and I I almost wonder in hindsight whether that was a bit of a knock on Spalletti given what Conte was uh, able to do so so this incredible start to life at Napoli must have been a um, well was it something of a surprise what's it done for his reputation? So Napoli are the most improved team in the league on last year, um, eight points better off, uh, along with Fiorentina, who I think we'll talk about a little bit later, and, and Torino, who I think we might touch on as well. Um, in terms of his reputation, I love Spalletti. I think he's one of the most innovative and engaging coaches of his generation. And he has, I think, affected trends in the game that have caught on in other leagues. Um, What I would say is I'd love to see him win a major league title. I mean, he's done it in in Russia uh, with Zenit St. Petersburg. I think were he to win one, it would elevate him to a a place where I think people in the game already see him. I mean, it has surprised me that he hasn't worked at a other big club abroad other than Zenit. and he hasn't really been mentioned uh, with a big a big club since, for example, the end of his time at Roma when there was talk that he had a conversation with Chelsea. I think it's really interesting to look at his last two jobs because at Roma, he did a really good job. I mean, he was the last one to get them into the Champions League. Um, he led them to a club record points total. Uh, he came in. Uh, mid-season, and he did what Spalletti does, which is to have a really attractive strikerless system, which was Mohamed Salah, Diego Perotti, and El Shawari. That was when Edin Dzeko was Dzeko, when he was being blind. And then in his second season, he made Dzeko, um, he got his best season out of him ever, scored more than 30 goals, won the golden boot. And then in his final season, everything happened with Totti, where the club said, Enough's enough, Totti, time for you to retire. And Spalletti was the lightning rod for that. And it made his position untenable, even though he delivered on, on, on the objective, which was to get the team into the Champions League. And more or less the same thing happened with Inter. I mean, he got Inter to the Champions League for the first time since, what, 2012? Um, Claudio Ranieri, I think, was the last manager uh, Inter had in a, in a group stage of a Champions League up until Spalletti. And uh, he did that back-to-back. A very difficult club with a lot of drama around it. Um, And again, a situation around the captain of that team, Mario Cardi, whose wife was uh, a pundit as well on a uh, late night sports show, criticising selections, criticising teammates, was not easy. And he was stripped of the captain's armband. And again, that situation 
was contagious and ended up affecting uh, Spalletti, who you know, I don't think will be, well, the circumstances of his sacking, he'll begrudge, but Inter had an opportunity to appoint Antonio Conte. And while he did take them on, they also bought Romelu Lukaku for him, bought Barella for him, bought Hakimi for, uh, for him. Um, and, you know, I think as Michael well knows, I think one of the, we've written this when we've done collaborations with, uh, between ourselves with Tom Warville about one of the things that Inter have that not a lot of other clubs have, and maybe we could look at Napoli in this respect, is, is having a deep-lying playmaker like Brozovic. And that was another Spalletti reinvention to, to put him there. So I think it, it, it's impressive what he's done at Napoli, and I, I, I hope it sustains, even though they will lose Koulibaly, they'll lose Anguissa, and they'll lose Osimhen for the African Cup of Nations come January. Yeah, that's an interesting wrinkle to, to a number of teams across the major European leagues. I note that Napoli's next Serie A fixture after the international break is Inter away. So uh, that is going to be already quite an, an exciting game week, if you will, upon Serie A's return. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Michael, Milan up there alongside them at the moment. Second last season. That was their highest finish since the 11-12 season. Uh, and therefore they are, uh, or they have had the added challenge this time round of Champions League football, but clearly still flying under Stefano Pioli. I feel, Michael, that I, like many, have read almost everything you've ever written. And when I think of Italian football and your writing specifically, AC Milan are the team that come to mind because perhaps the Italian club with the richest history tactically speaking uh, but of course in in the modern era a lot of Italian sides have have taken on new tactical identities how do you describe how they play under Pioli yeah I like watching them play uh, it's been um, I suppose a gradual development um, they've got back to the top I'd say relying a lot on Zlatan Ibrahimovic since he returned did an article I think about a month ago when he turned 40 on his his impact there has been quite extraordinary but so far this season he hasn't played a major role I mean, he's, he's been out injured he's He's started three games, I think. He's actually scored, I think, three goals um, as well when you include the substitute appearances. So he's scoring, but it hasn't been based around him. And again, to echo what I said before, it does feel like a team. They're sharing the goals around, the 12 goals in, the joint top. No one's scored more than four goals, um, in part because of Ibrahimovic's injury. Uh, Giroud has played a, a little bit up front. Uh, Ante Rebic has sometimes played up front, sometimes on the left where he has played in previous seasons. But... I think the most interesting thing they do tactically is is it, what they were doing last season really with Hernandez flying forward from left back um, and Calabria more tucking inside as a lot of clubs are doing at the moment. You know, there's one very aggressive fullback and one who's who's more sitting there. Um, I think there may be more to come in terms of 
the combinations in the final third, um, I feel like they haven't quite nailed down a couple of key positions in the number 10 role. Diaz has played their bit. Maldini's played their bit. Krunic has played there quite well, although he's not a player that really contributes a, a great amount of goals and assists in the final third. Um, but they are, they're very well organised. And uh, yeah, I think they, they've got various various ways they can break down defences. Um, and I think the, the options they've got up front feeds into that. Rebic, obviously, a very different option to, to Giroud and Ibrahimovic. So yeah, they've been a good watch so far this season. Does that stack up with what you've seen, James? How are Milan playing in order to pick up points quite so consistently, win games where others are failing to do so? I think they're less dependent on Zlatan. Um, Zlatan this time last year just had remarkable numbers that kind of stacked up alongside Haaland, alongside Lewandowski. Then when he decided to come out of international retirement, decided that he was going to host the San Remo Music Festival, um, <laughs> he got injured a lot um, and uh, they showed they could do it without him. Um, and I think Milan are one of the best pressing teams uh, in Serie A. You know, they're third in passes per defensive action, second for aggression, first in kind of opposition dribble percentage, so really disruptive in that regard. And while a lot of people look at, say, Zlatan, Giroud, old guys, typical Serie A, I would say there's a lot that's untypical about uh, Milan in Serie A in that yeah, they've got a lot of young players, um, Salamakas, for example, who they found from Anderlecht, um, I think very, very underrated in how he kind of set, sets the tone of how they press. Um, the midfield has a nice balance to it uh, with Kessie uh, and Ismail Benacer. Benacer is a really nice, tidy player, progresses the play well, can dribble as well. Not in the same way that a kind of classic Moussa Dembele could, but I think it's good. And as Michael says, the fullbacks and how Pioli uses them is really interesting because Teo has this incredible pace and ability to, to dribble inside. And this is what they do. I think we've spoken about it before where they kind of really want Teo to go inside rather than out and kind of collapse the middle. And, and how they've been using the, the two fullbacks this year is really interesting because often when they're building the play, in possession, the fullbacks will come inside uh, and play almost as midfield players. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's really struck me about Pioli is that maybe a few years ago, particularly after he was in charge of Inter, people thought he's finished. You know, he couldn't do it at a top Italian club. And instead, I think he's shown that a guy in his 50s can still evolve um, and kind of incorporate new concepts that are really quite interesting from a tactical point of view and uh, Milan in, in in Italy are considered the most German Italian team because of the pressing because of some of the fluidity of their movements so um, I've really enjoyed following them over the last 18 months two years uh, and you mentioned that people get a bit caught up looking at Zlatan age 40 Giroud age 35 but I'm looking at their FB ref page filtered by minutes played in the league this season. I mean, the, the, the top seven players are all between the ages of 21 and 25, basically. That's Tomori, of course, the, the English centre-back they signed from Chelsea. Rafael Leal, Davide Calabria, Sandro Tonali, Alexis Salemakers, you mentioned, and, and Teo Hernandez and Frank Kessier. I, I've got the ghost of Tom Warville in my ear purring 
Uh, it's actually very disconcerting because he would say this is a, 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 a victory of squad building, a victory of recruitment as well. Is that something that, that's been discussed in Italy, how well Milan, perhaps compared to some of the other larger Italian clubs, have done on a squad building front with the, the mid to long term in mind and, and now reaping the rewards? Yeah, I mean, it gets associated with Paolo Maldini and his, uh, not his deputy, uh, the sporting director, Ricky Masada, but there's a lot of more work that goes on behind the scenes there. Um, I think when Ivan Gazidis became the, the CEO, they invested in, in data and analytics. Um, they've got some of the people who worked at Arsenal uh, and they brought in Joffrey Moncada as the chief scout from Monaco. And Moncada, I think, does excellent work, as does the data team. And they're the guys who found the likes of, uh, of Salamakis, for example. Um, Tomori, I think they look at that and say, in this market where David Luiz kind of really set the benchmark, 50 million to PSG and now everyone, Harry Maguire is the most expensive centre-back in the world. Ben White goes for 50 million. To get to Mori for 28 is a steal. Um, someone who's really enabled them to, to play in the style that they do, which is have pace at their back. Because Simon Kier, for example, Kier's excellent positioning, Kind of reminds me of a bit of Ricardo Carvalho in in how he goes about defending, whereas Tomori's old front foot are playing uh, playing forward, and uh, I think they're quite countercultural in in Syria again, not just how they play but how they operate, because they're a team that has cut the wage bill by about twenty percent over the last two years, and that's coincided with them going from being a team that didn't qualify for the Champions League to one that does qualify for the Champions League. And, you know, with the exceptions of Leao and Tomori, a lot of their signings have been for very good value, very cheap, um, which is a, quite a contrast, if you like, with, say, how Inter um, built their title-winning uh, title team under Conte. Michael, what's happening at Juventus? Because... Uh, Max Allegri is, is back at the wheel, so to speak. They're seventh in the table at this what point. What a phrase that is! How how has how has at the wheel become like a football phrase? I mean, it's it's all Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Man. It's just a yeah. He is back at the wheel, but go go ahead, proceed. <laughs> well, how is he doing uh, back at the the uh, Turin wheel? Because uh, just a glance at the league table would show that Juve is seventh in the table at this point. Nothing particularly standing out on the on the underlying numbers on that front. In fact, I note that they haven't had a game this season that's been decided by more than one goal either way. All five wins by a single goal, all four defeats by a single goal and, and three draws in there as well. So uh, it's very, very difficult to understand much about them just on the surface level. Uh, I was wondering if you could fill us in a little bit more on how Juve have, uh, have adapted to life back under Allegri after the, the Pirlo season. Well, their underlying numbers are not good, Ali. <laughs> um, this is a team that isn't particularly creative. Um, and it has talent to be creative, but are the players in four positions compatible? For example, Morata is a player who likes to play a transition, uh, likes to play uh, with space in front of him that he can run in, into. Um, and I think... Is he still being found offside a lot? Because I feel like that's really plagued him in the last few a years. A lot. He, he's either offside or he hits the woodwork. But this is the contradiction with Morata, is that last year he scored more than 20 goals in all competitions, but you remember the ones that he missed 
more than the goals he scored. Um, and yeah, Allegri has looked at the team and he says, I think we're born to play on the counter-attack. We've got so many players who can do that. I mentioned Morata. He, he also goes with Chiesa, um, goes with Cuadrado, um, Kulusevski um, as well. He includes Dybala in that. I think Dybala is better, closer to goal, uh, operating sort of in that inside right channel um, around the penalty area. So I have question marks about the compatibility between Morata and, and, and Dybala. Also, they signed Moise Ken. Uh, they brought him back after selling Cristiano Ronaldo. We've seen a bit of Ken, but Ken, again, is a penalty area player. You know, loves to attack the penalty area. He's got a lot of energy and, and strength when he does that. And look, compared with Maurizio Sarri and Andrea Pirlo, it's a team that wants the ball less. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, will play deeper. Not afraid to uh, to play in their own penalty areas. They used to be, you know, under Conte and under Allegri, really kind of get the best out of Chiellini and Bonucci and Delict in that regard. Even though Delict says we don't kind of play as nice football as we did at Ajax, that's a shame. Um, but you know, it always comes back to the midfield with with Juventus, which is the midfield is is fingers are pointed at it for it lacking quality. Um, they have signed Locatelli. Uh, but Locatelli is actually someone who's very good at screening the defence. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always this rush to anoint players the next Pirlo um, in Italy. And we had it with Tonali, for example. I think we might have discussed him. And Tonali's doing his best at Milan at the moment is in the team because he's actually someone's got a lot of energy, can steal the ball, um, get up and down the pitch. And Locatelli's kind of, he does have an eye for a pass. He does have vision plays a lot of first-time passes, but uh, he's not Pirlo. Um, and then Artur, who they swapped with Pjanic. And I think Juventus have really missed Pjanic, even though he was getting on. Um, Artur is always injured. And so there's this feeling that they're not as good as con at controlling the game with the ball. They're better controlling it, controlling the kind of space and, and counter-attacking into it. So... They need to get creating more because their their numbers in that regard are it, it, it's just indicative of a team that is almost reliant on a, a flash of brilliance from an individual. Uh, given their status in Italian football, uh, you, you just mentioned Solskjaer, so I, I, I'm sort of going back to that. Is there is there panic setting in? Is there some sort of hysteria that they're seventh in the table, a, a third of the way through it, or is there a, a little bit more? Uh, patience when it comes to Allegri. I'm not complaining him and Solskjaer because Solskjaer's had three or four years and Allegri's just, just gone in in the summer. But I guess what I'm asking is, is there the same hysteria that surrounds the club when it's not doing well as there is for a Manchester United, dare I say, a, a Real Madrid in, in Spain? Six league titles and two Champions League finals. Uh, there's no comparison between Solskjaer and Allegri. Um, <laughs> but is Allegri's football trending against where Serie A is now? Uh, and I think we'll get to this with some of the other teams um, because certainly there's, there's, there's a feeling not just um, in the media, but certainly among pundits, ex-players, that Italian football is changing, that it's moving more in the direction that we saw the national team going at the European Championships, particularly in the first group stage games and in the early knockouts. Um, there's no panic events, of course, getting into the Champions League and then reaching the quarterfinals is everything um, to them. Uh, from a financial point of view. 
Um, but Juventus were in this position in 2015. Uh, they actually were able to come back and win this, the league that year um, with a, an incredible run of, I think, 15 straight wins. Um, but at that, in that season, there wasn't a team like Milan or Napoli uh, with an incredible record to start with, setting incredible pace. So they were able to get back into it. Um, so, look, Juventus don't sack managers in season. Allegri has been given quite a long-term contract, uh, quite a lot of power, and I reckon he'll figure it out. Um, it's just, there's more competition in Serie A these days. Um, you know, it's it's not just into being champions. It's as Michael says, it's, it's Napoli, it's Atalanta who have been there for five years and getting into the Champions League the last three. You've got Roma who've spent more money than any other Italian team this summer with Mourinho coming in. Um, and... Uh, and Lazio with with Maurizio Sarri as well, so it's it's very congested for a, for a top four spot. It's a fascinating league, definitely, and and well, we've kind of looked at a, a chunk at the top of it. But uh, I think in keeping with what this podcast is all about, we picked out a few other teams from mid table and even down in the bottom half who are interesting in a footballing sense for for other reasons than they are the teams that we recognise as being big names at the level. We're going to start by talking about Fiorentina. Uh, Michael, any team that's 12 games into a league season and has won six of them and lost the other six, that's a team I want to find out more about. Yeah, they're a funny one, Fiorentina, because... I mean, from from that record, you would think, oh, the games are really attacking. It's kind of Bielsa-style football. There's going to be goals at both ends. But they haven't been really. They've scored 16 in 12, which is all right. And they conceded 14 in 12, which is kind of what you'd expect. I mean, um, yeah, they got Vincenzo Italiano in there this season. He developed uh, a big reputation for himself at Spezia with very aggressive football, very high-pressing football. I think we've seen that at times from Fiorentina this year. I was slightly confused when I looked at the statistics because in terms of what FB Ref classes as um, a pressure, they've actually got the lowest pressures in Syria. Uh, when you break that down into what third of the pitch it's in, they're kind of mid-table for pressing high up, bottom half for uh, the middle third of the pitch, and then last in terms of pressures in their own uh, third. So I guess it does show, those statistics do show they are trying to press high up and aren't letting the opposition close to the goal. I mean, the main thing I've, I've thought about when I watched Fiorentina this year is I never really know what team is going to play. They've made so many changes. I think on th- in three games this year, he's made six changes. Um, there's only two players who have started every game so far this season. Uh, Biragi at left back and of course Vlajevic up front. Um, yeah, they've been, they haven't been quite as exciting as I thought they might be from the first three or four games of this season, I must say. But um, I think they're a work in progress. Clearly, Italiano is a very highly respected coach, but it feels like maybe it'll be the second season or maybe the, the second half of this season where they really come on strong because they've, they've tailed off a bit. They've lost four of the last six, so they're not they're not a significantly better side than, uh, than we might have hoped. James, what do you find most interesting about Fiorentina at the moment? Well, I think Michael alluded to it, how many players he... Is willing to use. I mean, 24 have got minutes for Fiorentina this this season. Um, at Spezia, that was a team that had never been in Serie A before, 
And they went about recruiting for it, maybe with COVID in mind and fixture congestion um, by saying, okay, we're going to lose players to, to positive tests. If we're playing every three days, as we have been for 18 months, players are going to get injured. He show, showed himself to be very able to coach a group of players um, and uh, believes that um, he can include and use every player and get them playing the style of play that he wants. And uh, I remember his his thesis came out at the same time as Pirlo's. And it was it was kind of much more interesting because he was he he's a former midfield player and you know he used to be a kind of a deep line playmaker if you like. Not a Pirlo, but sort of, you know, <laughs> often his role would be to mark the the opponent's number 10 um and it got him thinking like, okay, so if I take that reference point away from my opponent, um, then they have to find another way to, to beat us. Um, and uh, he's always looking at different reference points uh, for if they stop us here, how do we beat, beat, beat them? How we, and I think one way of doing that is the unpredictability of having a different starting lineup all the time. Um, it is uh, from... Uh, playing the same system, ultimately four three three, but with different interpretations within within a system, um, and he's got performances out of players who are thought of as lost causes, um, and they've got so many South Americans um, at Fiorentina, and when they go off on their international break and they turn up on uh, late on a Friday night when they've got a Sunday game to prepare for, he's not afraid to play, you know, the kind of forgotten about. Italians. Um, and I think that just shows what a resourceful coach he is. Um, and they've been very competitive in the big games. They've lost uh, most of them, um, but they've really given their opponents a, a, a hard time. And um, yeah, I, 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 what I find fascinating is they've got sort of Dusan Vlajevic, Arguably the hottest striker in Europe's top five leagues of his age, along with Haaland. Yeah, I mean, his numbers are kind of up there. Scored more than 20 goals last year. But uh, I think of his eight goals, only, only four have been from open play um, uh, this, this season. And they've actually struggled to, to create. You know, they're, they're, they're mainly looking at sort of, but they're mainly looking at Sapanara, um, Nico Gonzalez. Um, to, to sort of uh, help them win games. They've got a very nice dribbling number eight who wears the number 10, uh, Castrovilli, who's, I think, fallen off a little bit um, in, the last, in the last year or so. Um, and they've got Torreira back from, from, from Arsenal. Torreira, who's like this... I, don't, I, don't, I didn't watch him at Arsenal because I don't, I don't follow the Premier League as closely as you guys do, but someone who's very tenacious, but also someone who can, you know, sort of, dictate play in possession as well. And again, indicative of that kind of aggressive style that, uh, that, that Michael was talking about earlier. I mean, it, it seems to me from watching him, it's almost like what we saw maybe with Klopp at Liverpool or Pochettino at Tottenham, where the first few weeks is all about the pressing and there's almost not that much else. They can press, but there's the combination play in the final third, I, I don't think has been particularly good. I didn't know that stat about Vlaovic not scoring from open play, but it does tally. And it feels like that hopefully will come later because clearly there's a lot of uh, a lot of potential in this squad, albeit you think maybe Vlaovic might not be around uh, this time next year. 
perhaps they could use some of the Vlahovic money if he does make a big move to buy some players that to, to fit the Vincenzo Italiano style of play a, a little more closely. Uh, as a, a very frivolous aside, it's uh, as someone who's interested in language, quite cool to see someone whose surname is Italiano uh, managing in Serie A, like the equivalent of someone being called Vinnie English. And, you know, if Eddie Howe was called Vinnie English, that'd be nice. But it's not the, the, the coolest on that front. And I, I have to bring this up now because there'll be no other time where I could say this on a podcast and it would make any sense. I've always found it insane that there's a, a manager formerly of Schalke and Spartak Moscow called Domenico Tedesco, hmm. who is a German-Italian manager whose surname Tedesco literally means German in Italian. Yeah. But the nationality came after the name because he was born in Italy to Italian parents who then moved to Germany when he was two as if his dad felt there was some really important prophecy that he had to fulfil because his name meant German in his native language. Uh, that has, that's all, always blown my well, mind. Well, you know this is the vice versa in this case, no? Because Italiano was born in Germany. No. Yeah. No, no, it's true. He was born, I think he was born in Karlsruhe, I think. And this was the case when Italy won the World Cup in Germany in 2006. There was an incredible diaspora um, there. It's a number of, number of, places, uh, number of people who w- went to work in, in the mines and in, in industry in Germany. And there's a huge Italian community there. Um, so so for, for that reason, yeah, there are, I mean, there's a number of, number of players, like, for example, Riccardo Montelivo. Uh, speaks German is has a German passport. Um, there are there are other players like I think Caliguri as well, who's sometimes and, and Vincenzo Grifo. Although I think there is, I think I may be confusing this as they play in Germany and have occasionally been around Italy squads. But there's there's certainly this link uh, from an economic industrial perspective that means you have people like Vincenzo Italiano who you know born of Italian parents who moved to Germany to, 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 to earn a living. Maybe well, that's where that's... the pressing, the pressing is just born into him, you know, sort of <laughs> uh, from, from Klopp and that sort of thing. So there you go. There you go. Maybe he's the natural heir to Piolia AC Milan, the most German team in, in Serie A at this moment. We've gone, we've gone way out of our skis here. I need to lie down. Uh, let's talk about Venezia. Uh, who won the Serie B playoff last season to to earn their spot in Serie A. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. James, unfortunately for me, as, as like you with the Premier League, I don't cover or follow Serie A each week. Uh, probably embarrassingly, what I know about Venezia is that they have some of the most beautiful kits I've ever seen. And they have Ethan Ampadu playing 
in the middle of the park for them. Uh, but there's a lot more to them, I think, and that's why you've chosen to talk about them on the pod. Yeah. I mean, they have an Ampadu and they have an Aramu uh, as well. That's <laughs> quite confusing at times. It uh, must be difficult to commentate on. But um, <laughs> look, Venezia hadn't been in the top flight since 1999. Uh, they've got close on the Pippo Inzaghi, who got them up from the, the third division and then into, I think, uh, or in and around the, 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 the playoffs to get into the top flight. There's a change of ownership uh, from one American to another. Um, and... Uh, in the last 18 months, they've they've gone on this on this rise again. Uh, got into the playoffs last year. They ended up uh, earning promotion in stoppage time of the second leg of the playoff, which is the best way I think to get promoted. Um, Bocalon then jumping into the canals in, in Venice in, in kind of celebration, which was just great. But they've got a very young coach in in Paolo Zanetti. He's 38. What I like about him is that he plays either a 442 diamond or a Christmas tree. And uh, certainly at the moment, we're seeing a bit of a Christmas tree uh, with uh, Sofian Kiine and uh, Mattia Aramu um, playing just off a striker, Okareke, who used to play in in, uh, in Serie B with Spezia Cosenza and uh, then went off to play in Germany with Klopp Brugger. I think he played in the Champions League um, last season. They've also got a, uh, an Henri, whose first name begins with T up front, Thomas Henri, um, <laughs> who was playing for Leicester's, uh, or the, the club that Leicester's owners have in... Doesn't he, he wears number 14 as well. Wears number 14, does he? <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> he does. Um, uh, and they've got this guy called um, Gianluca Buzio, who, um, this is going to confuse you, Ali, but yeah, he's American. Um, so, so he, he's been a really exciting watch. He's, he came over from, I think, Sporting Kansas City. Um, yeah, he'd been impressing in MLS for some time. Fiorentino are interested. Um, there's always this kind of pressure, I suppose, on American owners to invest in American talent, but it's got to be the right talent. I think Buzio is. I mean, he's, he's someone who stood out for uh, aggressive, kind of uh, regaining possession in midfield. But what I really like him is he's very dynamic. He's, he, often, he sometimes plays in front of the defence, sometimes plays to the left. He can pass the ball. He looks really composed. He's just a really nice player. And, you know, it's kind of interesting that this, this Venezia side, um, you know, has like, I think, 18 foreign players. Uh, Cristiano, uh, so Paolo Zanetti, the coach, has said, look, I have to sp- I've had to start learning English so I can basically articulate, communicate with, with and get my ideas across to the team. Um but uh, I, I think what I really liked about him after the win against Roma um, at the weekend, and they've beaten Fiorentina at the Penzo as well, which is this the ground by the, the, the lagoon where you kick the ball out the stands and it goes into the water, um, is, is he said, look, if you look at on paper at our squad, you probably think talent-wise, we're not going to be competitive in City yeah, because, you know, some of the guys at the back, for, exa- for example, that we've got, Cecharoni, I think they signed for like 300 grand, Svoboda maybe free, Chernigoy in midfield for free. And it's like, actually, you know, it's not all about talent. It's about being a manager is about working on other aspects. It's about working on tactics. It's, it's, about, it's about working on, improving players' technique so they can they can play a better style and that they can face certain situations better. It's about making players fitter. And it's about working on psychological side as well. And I think that's why Venezia have been able uh, 
to get up and it looks like they might stay up as well. Um, although I say that with fingers crossed because I think all of us would like to go and see a game there. All of us would like to think of Venezia as being a consolidated kind of football city in a top flight league. Yeah, we've been we've been building our sort of dream European football weekends when when the budget is such that they can send us on those. San Sebastian Michael was was always right up there for us, but uh, Venice has to be on the agenda now. Paolo Zanetti sounds like a really interesting young manager. Yeah, I, I quite like seeing him back in Syria. I remember them from twenty years ago. They were always quite good fun. They always seem to get kind of shock wins at their home stadium, which you know maybe just because of its location, just seemed a bit more intimidating than than other grounds in Italy. Um, I hadn't seen much of him until the weekend win over Roma, uh, which was brilliantly dramatic 3-2 win. I loved um, Okareki's finish for the winner, a kind of step over and left foot finish. But I also really liked Ethan Ampadu's lovely ball over the top for him, which was kind of a Shane Warne style leg spinner, I'd say, with the <laughs> spin it got on it. I don't know if it just took a weird bounce, but the ball from the right channel kind of whipped over the defence into the right channel. And it just really bounced on its side and spun really nicely for Rakareki to finish with his left foot. I don't know whether it was deliberate, but um, if you haven't seen it, check it out on YouTube. Let's move on to Verona, currently right in the middle of the table, 10th place with four wins, four draws, four defeats. But they have already changed their manager this season, James. Di Francesco out, Igor Tudor in. He'll be a name recognisable to, to many for his ties to Juventus as a player. Uh, he joined in, in mid-September. What is it about Verona that meant they needed to be a team flagged up on the pod? Well, I think it needed to be flagged up for maybe a couple of years um, because... This is a team that is greater than the sum of its parts. It was under Ivan Juric, who's since gone on to Torino. Um, and Juric, to give you a flavour, uh, was a player under Gasparini at Genoa um, and then kind of followed the Gasparini path. Basically, Gasp got the Genoa job on the back of doing really well with Crotone. And Juric was the guy who got Crotone promoted for the first time ever in Serie A and then moved to Genoa where, frankly, he would beat Juventus but lose every other game. Um, and he's really Im imposed a style on, on Verona. And when he walked out on them, because he was like, you don't spend any money, you sell all our best players. Like, he was, he was he's kind of like Antonio Conte uh, in terms of basically not being afraid to tell clubs what he really thinks in public. Um, and, and yet, without the reputation of Conte, and knowing full well he could be sacked at any moment and might not get another job, um, which is, 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 is amazing. Um, so he walked out and they said, okay, right, we need to find someone who presses really high, very courageous. Okay, that's Di Francesco. He got Roma to a Champions League semi-final. But frankly, Di Francesco has lost 19 straight games, or I think he hasn't won in 19 straight games between these rebounds that he keeps going on from Roma, Samp, uh, Cagliari, and at Verona, where he was sacked very early this season. And what Tudor has done is, is, is quite simple. He's just kind of said, okay, what, what worked under Juric? Um, and uh, they play this 3-4-2-1, uh, uh, and the striker often changes. Uh, we'll get to the striker in a moment, but they play Antonin Barak, lovely, socks down, Czech midfield player, um, just off the striker. They have this guy called Gianluca Capradi, um, who was once kind of highly regarded. He's now 28. Capradi is just going through this incredible run of form, 
wonderful dribbler, cuts in off the left, is the one putting all the through balls through for the striker. Miguel Veloso, sort of very thoughtful um, coach on the pitch, if you like. Um, the guy who you know, kind of everything goes through there. And then in keeping with kind of Gasparini Urich, man-to-man, front foot, aggressive defending. Centre-backs at Verona always look really good, just as centre-backs at Torino now look very good. Centre-backs at Atalanta look very good. Um, and they've got the hottest striker uh, in Europe's top five leagues at the moment, Giovanni Simeone, Cholo's son, Diego Simeone's son, um, with outrageous numbers, scored more goals than any player in Europe's top five leagues in September, sorry, in October. Um, but how sustainable is this? Because um, 56% of his, his shots are goals. It's just mad. He's, I think he's got nine goals off like 2XG. 75% of his shots are on target. I mean, it's, it's, and, and some of his goals are just worldies. Just like, I mean, it's... The great thing is we don't really need Tom on the podcast anymore because <laughs> he's taught us enough that we all know the answer to that question now. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not sustainable, although it does sound rather good fun. Uh, four goals in one game against Lazio, wasn't it? Yeah, truly ridiculous. Four goals in one game. Uh, what sort of... Is he a pure nine? Is he a bit of everything? I, I, I must admit this is, this is kind of news to me, but exciting. Well, he's... Been in Italy for a while now, um, uh, Giovanni. Uh, he was at Genoa. Uh, he, he kind of, again, like Juric, yeah, who always would win against Juventus, he would always score against Juventus, which he's done this season, scored twice. Um, uh, but, yeah, he's not a midfield player like his dad, but he kind of has his dad's approach, which is to run his socks off, um, to cover every blade of grass, and then be so exhausted that when the ball comes to him on the edge of the penalty area or in the box, he doesn't know what to do with it and just either falls over or, 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 or shoots wide. But not this season, where just everything he hits turns to goal. And you mentioned their former manager, Juric, there. He's in at Torino at the moment. Uh, I noticed that Torino, albeit mid-table or, or 12th rather out of 20 at the moment, uh, looking at the Opta Analyst numbers, uh, on their website, sixth best for open play expected goals for, and the second best for XG against from open play. So Juric, uh, albeit not yet reflected in the league table, seems to be doing some pretty good stuff with Torino as well. Yeah, they've been unlucky. They should be uh, higher than they are in the table. They've played really well in the big games. They're unlucky, for example, against Juventus. Uh, Locatelli goal from outside the box ultimately did for them. They've been without Andrea Bellotti, um, their kind of star striker for much of this season. He has come in. He doesn't look fit. Tony Sanabria, the kind of Paraguayan that they had, he used to be at Betis, has been doing pretty well for them. Um, but as I, as I said, uh, they've got some good sort of young players like for example Ola Einer is is another one of the Chelsea boys who's who's out there has gone back there after last year at Fulham they've got Wilfred Singo who um uh, came out of nowhere really and is just a, a real force to be reckoned with out wide they've got one of the best center backs although it's again hard to judge center backs in the Europe system because he may, I think he could make us three look like the best back three in in Serie A so Bremer is very good. And then they've got Sergei Milinkovic Savic, um, uh, the, the Lazio midfield player. His brother plays in goal, Vanya, and Vanya takes free kicks. 
as well. Oh so. no way! That is that is our dream. Yeah. That is genuine. We've done a whole podcast on goal scoring goalkeepers. Um, has he has he gone close? He's hit the bar. And have there been because the, I mean the whole aspect of that of that podcast was isn't it great when goalkeepers are in a position to score goals from free kicks and uh, and and penalties? But also, isn't it boring how in the modern game it's perceived that the risk of being caught out uh, is not worth the quite small chance, as Tom would say, quite small probability of scoring a direct free kick. So have there been any instances of a, a sort of streaking away on the counter-attack with Milinkovic-Savic sprinting back to his own goal? I'm sure there must have been. Uh, not one that comes readily to mind. Um, but uh, I imagine if we if we go on to talk about Sassuolo, um, goalkeeping's very interesting there, not in in terms of just what it says about the role itself, but the kind of direction that Serie A has been heading in for the last couple of years. Okay, let's talk about Sassuolo and goalkeeping. What direction is Serie A heading in via Sassuolo's goalkeeper? So they've got this guy who's been around for ages called Andrea Consigli, and uh, he basically is a midfield player playing as a goalkeeper. Um, (laughs) And Or he's been taught to be. Um, And... Uh, they had this... So w- when you were allowed to basically have uh, players on your team basically come into the penalty area, you had that rule change. Like, uh, Sassuolo took it to the extreme. So they have the kind of shortest goalkeeper pass length percentage in in, in Serie A. And, and this was very much a trademark of their old manager, Roberto Di Zerbi, who's since gone on to uh, so to Shakhtar in Ukraine, and I think if you're looking in uh, in the Champions League, only only Chelsea, only Mendy plays it shorter than uh, than, than Shakhtar do, and this is all this this is the culture war in Italian football at the moment is playing out from the back, uh, and uh, and it's all around Sassuolo and their goalkeeper, which is is they basically want to invite pressure. Uh, attracted and then play through it and, and not play counter-attacking football. So this is why Conte gets really angry about people who basically say you're a counter-attacking team because he feels like he's part of this movement now. Um, and But it's really about Sassuolo basically saying, come on then, come into our own penalty area and we'll play six passes in our own penalty area and then just play through you and boom, uh, we're, we're, we're through. So even though Dezerbi's gone... Um, uh, they they've kind of stuck a little to that um, with 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 some changes. So I think that's one of the reasons why they're always kind of quite fascinating to watch. Just Michael, just a ton of teams in Serie A that if you're tactically minded, tactically interested, you kind of need to be watching. Perhaps maybe more so than the Premier League currently. Just quite a lot of funky stuff going on by the sounds of things. Yes, that's what I haven't seen at all this season. I saw them a bit under Deserva when they were, I mean, really, really exciting. And I was a bit, I mean, obviously Shakhtar quite a big club, but it was a shame he didn't stay in one of the, the leagues that we might encounter a little bit more than, than Ukraine. But uh, yeah, I haven't seen them this season, but they sound very exciting. Talk to me about Italy and set pieces, something that you wrote about a few weeks ago. Uh, yeah, it was a, an article that was on the site a couple of weeks ago. It was it was looking at how Italian teams have started defending wide free kicks in a very different way from pretty much any other teams. Um, so, of course, traditionally, if there's a wide free kick, defence would set out in a very solid line, usually relatively high up the pitch, maybe on the edge of the penalty area, depending on where the, the free kick is taking place. 
And a lot of Italian styles, I think, started by Milan a couple of years ago, but it spread very quickly. Um, almost defend as if they're defending only at a corner. So they defend in two banks of four, maybe starting eight yards away from their goal, another bank of four, maybe five yards in front of them. And they come out and they attack the ball rather than retreating and trying to hold the offside line. There's no attempt to play offside. They're starting very deep, almost like a not far off a hockey team defending like a short corner or something and then coming forward and defending the the, uh, the free kick. And it looks very weird the first few times you see it. There was one of the games I was looking at the weekend. can't remember who it was. I think it was the Nap- was it Napoli game maybe. But both sides were defending this way. Um, so it looks very weird. But actually, the more I watched it, the more I saw the benefits of it. And I don't think it... I haven't seen the spate of teams conceding goals from that kind of situation. The one team who's, who's done it in the Premier League was Everton last season, obviously when they had an Italian manager in, in, in uh, Ancelotti, who I suspect have watched Milan and, and picked it up from them. But I think when I when I tallied it up, there was eight of the 20 Serie A teams were defending in this way. So, uh, yeah, it's. I, I tried to find examples from across Europe. I think there was one team in Spain, maybe Celta Vigo, who were doing it. One team in Germany, I can't remember who, who were kind of half and half. But it does seem a very specific Italian way of uh, of defending at the moment. It does sound like quite a uh, just a, a fairly fascinating place in general tactically. Um, James has been kind enough to talk us through it for an hour, and I have absolutely loved hearing about all the teams that we've talked about, all the managers as well. I think for for many people, this would have been a really interesting dive into Serie A and and perhaps something of a wake up call to. Well, it's it's entertainment levels and the the quality on offer and the competitiveness as well at the very top and and all through the league. So thank you very much, James, for joining us. Pleasure. I've learned a lot about Serie A and also thanks to you about the concept of human movement between nations, uh, nationality, dual nationality, sociology and and various other bits and bobs as well. So um, truly every day is a school day when James joins the podcast. A massive thank you to you. Uh, Thanks to Michael as well for uh, giving his little dusting of of Cox level tactical input as well. We're going to look at Germany and Spain over the next few weeks as well. So hopefully you've enjoyed this podcast. We'll be uh, going deep with Dermot Corrigan, with Rafa Hon Stein as well on those two respective leagues. Um, that's it from us this week. We will have a bonus interview episode coming out later on this week and in it you will hear Tom Warville's voice uh, one last time on this podcast. It's an interview with MK Dons's sporting director Liam Sweeting in which we discuss implementing an extreme tactical philosophy, recruiting players to fit that philosophy with limited resources and how to conduct a new manager search when your head coach leaves for another club just six days before the start of the season. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed so you can get that when it drops and also subscribe to The Athletic. Head to theathletic.com forward slash tactics. You'll get 33% off an annual subscription. You'll be able to read everything that James writes about Italian football and all of Michael's good stuff as well. Join us again later on this week and next week on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. The Athletic.